0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 175th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me Jag. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, including our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Alexandra Hudson. Uh, We're friends now, so you can call her Lexi. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I wanna remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, go ahead and start typing your questions into the comment streams, and we will get to as many of them as we can. So uh, our guest today is Alexandra Lexi Hudson, um, and she is the founder and curator of Civic Renaissance, a publication, a newsletter, and community dedicated to ennobling modern public discourse with uh, the wisdom of the past. She earned her master's degree in public policy at the London School of Economics as a Rotary scholar and was named the 2020 Novak Journalism Fellow. Her new book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, uh really impressive blurbs and testimonials from Jonathan Haidt, uh, Francis Fukuyama, among others. And its aim is to help mend division, empower readers to live tolerantly uh, with others and debate issues rather than silencing disagreements. Uh, Lexi, thanks for joining us. JAG, thrilled to be here. So I've been so looking forward to this interview, particularly since at the Atlas Society uh, with our subscription to open objectivism, we prize tolerance and benevolence as foundational to learning from one another. Tell us a bit about the backstory of uh, this book, having grown up. In the courtesy biz, as you put it, as the daughter of Judy, the manners lady, but also how the need to explore this personally and ultimately preach it professionally uh, grew out of your experience in the swamp um, and your growing disillusionment with the uh, kind of duality of obsequious politeness, as well as unalloyed
1: aggression. Tell us a bit about that. So I was raised um, by somewhat of an expert in etiquette and manners. She's called Judy, the manners lady. So I was raised in this environment that was attentive to social norms and social expectations. But this um, might not surprise you. Um, It's what... Originally drew me to the ideas of Onran. I am constitutionally allergic to authority. Like I hate being told what to do, and I'm just skeptical of you know when someone tells me to do something. I want to know why. And I I always hungered for this the the answers for the reasons behind our social norms and and why do we do things the way that we do them. You know why do we set the table like we do? Why do we um, use forks at all? You know like and I I hungered for these answers. And my mother you know more often wanted to just get us down to Eat, you know. She just she, she would just say, "This is just the way we that we that we do things," and and that that always I was always kind of left with these questions uh, lingering in the back of my head. But for the most part, um, my mother, who you know taught us the ways and means of of courtesy and kindness to others, but who also just models un believable hospitality and generosity and graciousness uh tr- the, the soul of true civility as I conceive it in my book um she promised um my brothers and I that if we followed the rules of politeness that they would serve us well in work and in life and she was right uh, for the most part until I found myself at the United States Department of Education and there while I was in government. I saw these two extremes I saw on one hand, um, aggressive, a hostility, people who were willing to do and say anything to get ahead. And on the other, on the other hand, I saw people who were polite and polished. And at first I thought these were my people, they, they, they were, <laughs> the ways and means of courtesy and decency like I was. And I realized that these, that these are the people who would, um, smile and flatter at me one moment and stab me in the back the next and that really alarmed me that perplexed me because growing up my mother had had said that uh, manners were an outward extension of our inward character and here i was surrounded by people who were well mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel and that 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 caused me to um disambiguate the, the the civility from politeness that's a core argument of my book that there is um an essential distinction between civility and politeness that politeness is manners it's etiquette it's external it's uh, it's polish as its etymology suggests i'll get to etymology in a second um Civility is a disposition. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals and and, uh, who are worthy of respect just by virtue of our shared personhood as human beings. And that sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite. It requires telling a hard truth, engaging in robust Debate, and so really quickly, as like a, I like etymology. It's throughout the book. As um, I love the history and the stories behind our words, our vocabulary, but it's also a mnemonic device. So I I like to share this because it's a helpful way to remember the difference between civility and politeness. That. The Latin root of politeness is poliere, which means to smooth or polish, and that's what politeness does. It focuses on the external; uh, it's superficial, polishes over difference, tends to, at its worst, sweep difference under the rug, as opposed to giving us tools to grapple with difference head-on. The Latin root of um, civility is civitas, all things related to city, citizenship, and the city, uh, and, and this and um, the citizen in the city, and it's it, that's what civility is. It's the duties and habits befitting a citizen in a free society in the in the Civis.
0: Well, uh, you also um, provide various examples of these historical figures going back as far as ancient Greece, uh, attempting to pass along advice on manners and mores. Uh, when did the genre of writing and publishing about, etiquette and manners, when did it really come into its own if there was a golden age, so to speak?
1: So I I wrote this book now for a reason, because um, my book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, is about the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? That's the most important question of our current moment. It's the question of democracy, of the classical liberal project, how do we do life together to get given competing priorities and interests. But as I wrote this book, I realized that this is a timeless question as well. It's it's one we've been grappling with since the dawn of our species. It's, you know, it's the question of our current moment, the question of democracy, but it's also the question of, of, of the human species, of the human social project as well. How do we overcome our self-love and thrive in community and, and, and collaborate and cooperate with others to achieve our potential as a species? And what hammered this home for me was when I discovered that the oldest book in the world is a civility book. The oldest wow. book from 2350 BC, so nearly 5,000 years ago, this um, it's called the maxims of Tahotep given to us from ancient Egypt and Tahotep was a fascinating guy. He was an advisor to ancient Pharaoh and he was someone who had reached the pinnacle of earthly success and political power. He had been in the room where it happens his entire life. And then he, he was even offered the opportunity to become Pharaoh, but he turned down that opportunity of earthly power and retired to a quiet kind of genteel pastoral life. And he reflected on the stuff of the good life, the stuff of human flourishing. And he wrote this handbook, this, these 37 maxims, these teachings for how to do life together across difference for Pharaoh's son, Who and he hoped that his handbook, his his insights about you know, human flourishing would um, help Pharaoh's son become a good and wise Pharaoh and leader of ancient Egypt. And, but these, these maxims, these teachings were widely read across Egyptian culture and across Egyptian history. And e- even in other parts of the world, for example, the ancient Greeks really revered the ancient Egypt's Egyptians as well. So it's quite possible they had access to these teachings as well. And what's remarkable about the teachings of Tahotep is that they could appear in a advice column today. You know, Judith Martin of the Washington Post, for example, you could very well read one of these you know, see one of these maxims and and imagine them being written by her. They're very, very much conventional wisdom that, that all these things we've heard about before and our parents taught us growing up and that people have been teaching and reminding us of across human history and culture. For example, Tahotep says, do not abuse your authority or power over someone who is less powerful than you. Use that, use that authority, use that power well. He says, don't gossip, don't slander others. He has three or four distinct teachings condemning slander and gossip. Um, He says, be good to your neighbors and your friends, not just when you need something, but all the time, just because they're people that Happened to be around you, you know, like that we that we owe people owe people uh, a bare minimum of respect just because they're they're people and we coexist with them. And what I learned from reading books from like such as *Tahoe Taps* and others like that across history and across culture is that thoughtful observers have come to independently the same idea of human nature, the human condition, and the stuff of the good life, independent of one another, which I think is really powerful. And they all conceive that we're profoundly social as a species, we thrive in relationship, we become fully human in relationship with others, but we're also defined by self-love and those two facets of who we are, our intention. And that's why democracy, friendship and civilization itself are always fragile. They're never a foregone conclusion. And we each have a role to play in choosing to sustain it in our voluntary everyday interactions with our fellow citizens and fellow human beings.
0: It's interesting um, because, and I know you are no stranger to Ayn Rand, and in fact, have read uh, Alice Shrugged and even entered the essay contest on that. Um, But I, I think that where objectivism would take a different perspective, and we can civilly debate it. Of course, we can. Uh, is, yes, is that um, self love, which is natural, right? It's part of human nature. It, we want to preserve ourselves. Uh, that if it is pursued rationally in a long, with a long view, right? Not a kind of short term, what can I get now? All of these things uh, would ensue that it is not in your selfish, long-term interest to be a gossip. And uh, it it is not in your your selfish long-term view to to abuse uh, salespeople or to um, manipulate, uh, you know, that kind of person that consistently uh, manifests that kind of short-term selfish behavior over time is going to end up alone because, uh you know, they're, I mean, these people that these operators that you dealt with when uh, you were in DC, uh you didn't think that these were people that you would want to um, do business with in the future. You came away with a very dim view of them um and you decided to surround yourself with people that, you know, and get, had integrity. So I guess, I think it's almost that when people fail to exercise the reason in order to really understand is what I'm doing uh, going to serve me well? Is it going to help me build a character that is going to give me the strength to achieve my objectives and to live well with others and to attract the kind of people that I want to do, what I want to have in my life? Um, that when we fail to think things through. So that might just be a question of semantics in terms of how we view it, or um,
1: it may be just a difference in how we view. No, sort of I, I 100% agree with you. And I had an entire footnote that ended up being way too long. And I unfortunately had to cut it for exactly you and people like you, Jag, who would, who would call me out on that. But like that self-interest rightly understood. And I went through, you know, Tocqueville, Bernard Mandeville, um, Adam Smith, this long lineage of people. Who understood that as we pursue our self interest, it is entirely possible. Like it's not either or, it's not zero sum that we're either all in on society or all in on self, right? And just for the sim- for the sake of simplicity of argument, I, I didn't have that footnote in. And you know, it was already the book is very long, as I learned last week when I had to record my audio book in studio publication. Oh, week, looking which is forward have, to that. Which is why I have no voice right now, because it was so long. I'm like cursing myself. Why did I write such a long book? <laughs> um, but no, I, I completely agree with you, and that's actually the core argument of my, my, my case for civility, that people think that when they are being uncivil, they're, they're, um, they're, they're winning, right? Like we hear that rhetoric a lot today, that the stakes are too high.
0: You're owning your, you know, right. yeah, on the lips. the lips. That's exactly or, right. right.
1: Or that, you know, the other side is too bad and the stakes are too high to be decent to the other side. And what we don't realize, what people who have that kind of zero sum mentality don't realize is that when they have that mentality, they actually do hurt themselves at a moral level, but also as a societal level, because they're undermining um, our social fabric and our uh, democratic institutions that rely on social trust and basic camaraderie between citizens that allows for our, dem- our democratic institutions to survive and sustain. So it is, I think you said it really well, Jag, that it's short-sighted. You know, the people mm-hmm. who, who undermine me in government, for example, a colleague one time asked me to uh, help him with a project. And I was happy to help and He flattered me that day. He said, oh, you look radiant. And, and you know, um, I really love your help. You know, you're so smart. And I was very happy to help. I didn't realize he He wanted me to actually do the entire project for him. And I didn't realize- He wanted
0: to sacrifice you to himself.
1: Right. That he didn't. Yeah. And then he went and then he took all of my work and passed it off uh, as his own entirely without credit, without inviting me to the appropriate meeting. Like I had done all the legwork and what's the result of that. I'm not going to help him again. Right. That's right. One and done. That's so, it's so obvious that it's like a, that was a very short sighted as opposed to recognizing like we're colleagues, like we're going to see each other every day, as long as we're both in the building, you know, like, well, and yeah. And
0: his, uh, if he was thinking long-term, he'd be like, wow what a powerful ally she's a hard worker she got it done she's you know benevolent she's willing to work better not burn this girl i want to be you know being able to be doing business with her long term uh sure i could just you know get a quick hit in this meeting pass her work off as my own but yeah he he, he missed the boat and so in that way i would say that he was acting uh yeah, in a very irrationally um not in his self-interest in, in the long term.
1: Creatures, that's part of the problem, right? Like we're well. We're,
0: I think <laughs> I th- I would disagree with you there too. I would say that we um w- we are distinct in that we must use our reason to survive. We are not little, you know, chicks being born or little, you know, uh, calves being born with our instincts. Right. So we kind of right. know what to do. Uh, you know, we have a choice to exercise our reason, or to not exercise our reason. Yeah. As Ayn Rand used to say, uh, you can uh, avoid reality, or in other words, avoid being rational, but you can't avoid the consequences of being real, of, of, of evading reality. And it's it's hard, I mean, you know, cultivating your reason, exercising it, yeah. and then having a hierarchy of values to say, Oh gosh, you know, um, I really would like to just skip out on this promise that I made. But, you know, understanding that your reputation, your character, and your community of of, of people is more important to you than whatever, you know, you could just kind of get out of cheating for the the lot the short term. Um, but one. you you did have one really interesting piece of advice that was very aligned with um, objectivism, or at least the way I kind of interpret it. Uh, In your chapter on freedom and democracy, your piece of advice was, quote, reclaim the superpower of unoffendability. Uh, You know, for whatever reason, my Google is not uh, recognizing that as a word, but I think we need to to make it a word. We need yes. to, to uh, recapture it. You wrote, you continue to say, when someone says something you do not like, reclaim your power over the situation yes. by choosing not to be offended. Um, so this superpower is, of course, will call to mind people who have read Ayn Rand's uh, The Fountainhead, including the exchange between Howard Rourke and Ellsworth Toohey, in which uh, Toohey, who is tried to ruin Rourke, asks him, so, you know, what do you think of me, uh, Mr. Rourke? And Howard Rourke said, I don't think of you. So that was just the ultimate in unoffendability, even with somebody who was trying to destroy him. So um, would it be better to teach young people to cultivate unoffendability rather than to just kind of send them out on this hunt for, for microaggressions and tell them that they need a safe space, that they're so fragile that they, they, they can't, you know, even hear something that might offend them.
1: Right. And I, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, Jag, and I think it's so much easier said than done. Like here, I wrote for sure. This book, you know, like I wrote this book and I believe that, I believe that we each have the power to be unoffendable. And, you know, you corrected me a moment ago and I said, we're not rational beings. And I said, I, I should have said, we're not always rational beings, you know, like we're absolutely, we're all capable of reason, but we don't always act you know, within our own interests, <laughs> and with and, and exercising our reason to the fullest. And so, you know, there are oftentimes, you know, even even this day, I can think of a handful of times where it's like, you know, I got an email and it just rubbed me the wrong way. That was my first impulse, and you know, I I, I have the capability to step back and say, okay, let's reframe let's, let's read, let's, let's tell a different story. This is another Mm -hmm. idea that I unpack in the book that we're so quick to tell stories of conviction and condemnation, right? Like there's something in psychology called the fundamental attribution error where we're much more gracious for our own motivations, like why we do things and why we're late and why, you know, we make excuses for ourselves, but we are ruthless with other people. When someone else is late, they've wasted our time when we're late. It's like, cause we, you know, we're under the weather and we had a late night last night and we had to get our kids to school. You know, there are a million excuses. And so, um, but the same is true when, when it comes to reclaiming this power of unoffendability that we can tell ourselves stories, not of con- conviction and condemnation that, that, that imbue intent coming from someone else that, that instead exonerate them, you know, like that, that, that tell a, a charitable story that, um, neutralizes the power the, the hurt, because we can't respond if, if, if we get an email and we were having a bad day or someone says something, it's possible for something to just hit us the wrong way at the wrong time, right? Like that's our first emotional response, but as human beings, you're absolutely right. We're capable of reason. We're capable of will and self-determination to rise above that first impulse and emotional instinct no. and say, okay. Like, how do I act according to my values and my logic and, mm-hmm. and, and what's going to both make me happier and what's going to contribute to peace and p- peace and prosperity in society and walking around with a chip on my shoulder, choosing to see everyone as out to get me is not going to make me happy. And it's certainly not good for society and social trust either if I'm just like, you know like a reactive animal ready to like lash out at every moment. And so here I am saying this and yet that it still happens. Sometimes we're like, you know, something of just course. takes its own way. And I'm like, you know, I, and I have to take my own advice. And I don't perfectly do it. Like that's, what's vulnerable. And I hope that comes through Jag in the book that I'm on this journey myself. Like I, this is very much, you know, not me on high having figured it all out. Like it's, it's hard Like, like self-improvement growth, like being a rational human being is hard. Society's hard, right? Like sometimes I'm like, why do I even try? Like, let me (laughs) just take my family off the grid and like, don't not see anyone. Like that's what sometimes it's like that. And, but it is, but it it is the good life. It is the best life, life in in, in community. And it's worth the effort. I think some days. Yes. Yes,
0: (laughs) absolutely. Um, No, I, I hear you on that. I I know, you know, I'm out here in Malibu, LA traffic, people (laughs) cut you off and what i try to do is i just tell myself a story you know that person just got the worst news of his life his wife is leaving him and he's in tears or he's you know rushing to pick up a child that's sick makes me happier and not only do i feel better in the moment but i'm also ready you know i'm 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 ready and i'm clear And I'm in a happy, buoyant frame of mind for whatever it is that I next have to do to be productive and accomplish my uh, objectives. Um, And, you know, part of that, and I think, again, this really resonates with uh, with open objectivism and to with what our founder, David Kelly, uh, wrote in The foundational document of the Atlas Society, uh, which is truth and toleration, which is in contrast to this very dogmatic approach to objectivism, which too often can sort of devolve into judge, you know, often judge quickly um, that, you know, we don't, we don't always have all the facts, making sure that, you know, we're open to information as uh, David Kelly says, if we are wrong, uh, we have something to learn if we're right, uh, we have nothing to fear. So you shared an interesting example in the book about a uh, a young woman with Down syndrome that you came across in your time working in education, particularly with people with d- disabilities, where she was called on the carpet um, for, you know, disciplinary hearing because people thought she was being intolerant. It's hard to believe that when we're talking about somebody with such severe um, disabilities, but tell us a little bit about that and what your takeaway was in terms of civility.
1: So one of the greatest privileges, I'm happy to talk at length about what I hated about working in government (laughs) and the bureaucracy, but one of the privileges of, of, of working in government and was my time learning from and working with, um, students and uh, with intellectual and cognitive disabilities. And so that in this one, um, day during my time in government, I was invited to visit a a school for that, that offered a higher education experience for, for people with disabilities. And for some reason I was invited to this disciplinary meeting. Um, and this, this young girl, AC, she she was, you know, 21 petite blonde. Um, and she was like shivering, literally physically shaking at the far end of this table with all these administrators around her. And I was, um, like just standing off at the back and you know, this poor girl was trembling with fear and her parents were conferenced in on the call. Um, cause they were, they were yeah, not, not local. And the administrator starts the meeting saying there's been an incident. And of course my heart dropped reminding me of every single time I was in trouble growing up, you know, like a pr- principal calling me in and, you know, wanting to have a serious conversation. PTSD. <laughs> Seriously. That's what it felt like. I was like, Oh no. And, um, they proceed to share with her parents on the phone that the night prior, um, AC, this young girl with Down syndrome had committed an act of intolerance. She, she had, put a towel on her head and mimicked the hijab uh, the religious head covering of of her uh RA in in, in dorms on campus and and this was not an academic environment they said that would tolerate intolerance <laughs> and <laughs> her mother was like you know dumbfounded like but at first ac like breaks into tears she's like mom take me home this is a mistake like I shouldn't have come here, like take me home, which just like broke every I, my heart. Cause it's like, you know, we're just a few weeks into the school year and to have this early setback, you know, and that they're being made to feel like a, like a criminal when, when mm-hmm. you know, clearly anyway, I don't want to get too far. So her mom proceeds to tell the administrators, you know, like we grew up in the Midwest and there wasn't a lot of diversity here. And what was, what you're interpreting as an act of intolerance was probably more just an act of ebullience and, and, and joyful inhibition at meeting a new friend and being curious and an expression of curiosity and wonder at, at novelty. Like she's never seen this before. She doesn't know enough to, you know, to be malicious or intolerant. And, and her mom said, you know, to be quite frank with you, this is probably exacerbating AC's lifelong struggle with accepting her disability. Like she's, you know, she's that her mom shared, you know, we're, we, we are a Christian home and we have, have taught AC that, um, God created her just the way she is perfect as she is. And, and that's why we wanted her to have this experience in a higher educational institution. Um, and, and, and so what, what this experience taught me was that it's entirely possible for people to be on the outside looking in and misjudge people's motives, you know, and, and, and bring their own biases to what they're seeing as opposed to seeing like for, in this instance, claiming or assuming that a young girl with Down syndrome was having, was, was, was acting out intolerantly as opposed to saying um, she just doesn't know, you know, like that she, she doesn't have the, the, the wherewithal. Literally. Curious. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and conversely, as I learned in government, it's entirely possible to have all the norms and polish and politeness in the world. And be ruthless and cruel. So the story illuminated for me this mismatch between inner and outer, between manners and morals. And and it reminded me how exacting we are, how ruthless we are as a society um, with people who are socially atypical. And, and I wondered, and I, you know, I muse aloud throughout my book that I make an equity argument, like an, 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 egalitarian argument. Like if we want to be an open and tolerant and inclusive society, what does it mean to, you know, let go of some of our attachment these rules of propriety and like even you know I don't talk about political correctness but many other thoughtful people have talked about political correctness is like a status marker you know knowing which words to use and how to use them and how and, and knowing what's politically correct and uh what, what what subjects are just off the table um that that's a um signifier of education of erudition oh, of sensitivity yes no, it's,
0: that's very interesting, because I, I have run into that, you know, over the course of my life that I'm using a word, and then I'm told, well, no, that's not the word we use anymore. <laughs> um, and I, I do think that this attempt to control language and to dictate, uh, really, the manners, the political manners that we're supposed to have, is a way of also controlling thought. You know, I've, I've written about this um, with regards to homelessness like that. And apparently that's not even the term you're supposed to use anymore. No, one, or something. Yeah. Unhoused or whatever, <laughs> but like in enforcing it, which, which is interesting because both of them have to do with one particular issue, which is housing. And that this person is outside on the street because it's a housing issue. And that kind of, feeds into a particular agenda of people that want to uh, approach homelessness in a, in a certain way. Before, we had dozens of uh, words that we could uh, use. Some were, you know, probably not very polished or polite, but they may have been more apt, you know, maybe this was a bum, maybe this was a panhandler, maybe this was uh, a drug addict. And and maybe if you wanted to really solve the problem, you needed to look at what this individual uh, was was dealing with. But in going back to that, kind of, you gave us a level set at the very beginning of this book, there was this great matrix that that you had of um, contrasting the polite response versus the civil response that was here. <laughs> so you yes. can, can see it. Maybe use some of those examples so that we can really understand like whether it's your boss has a bad haircut
1: or what have you, right. what is polite versus what is, what is the civil thing to do? Right. So I think I give three examples. I'll, I'll share just a, a few of them. So, um, Say you have your, your, your boss comes in to work and has a terrible haircut, but you have your performance review coming up in a few days and you want to, you know, collect all your chips and ingratiate yourself as, as much as possible to your boss in hopes of smoothing things over before your performance review. The polite person, the polite response would be, to, you know, just gush and flatter and say, oh, it's you know, fabulous today. You know, like, oh, you got a haircut looks great, even though you internally don't believe it, but you're lying because you're hoping of, for self-serving reasons, you know, it's not to, it's not to actually make your boss feel good. It's, it's hoping it's to manipulate him and to prime him for the conversation later in the week about your, you know, your bonus or, or, or salary raise or whatever it is. the the civil response would be to not lie, you know, not to, um, the Shakespeare has this great, uh, concept called mouth honor and that's outward gestures that don't corroborate internal feelings. And, and so it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be to, to lie and say that you like the haircut with it that, that you don't like, you could instead find something else to compliment, that you earnestly can and honestly can compliment but it wouldn't it wouldn't lie a civil response might just be to stay silent or to find something else that you could honestly compliment um and and i another example is you're at a dinner party and the person next to you does the unthinkable and uh it's a fancy you say a finger space. bowl of, of Exactly water. exactly I know i know maybe not of all of us have finger bowls at our at our daily dinner table but you know uh the the person it goes to goes to drink the the, the, the finger bowl um the, the polite person might let that faux pas happen and um, secretly judge them and feel superior to them because that they they've exposed themselves as as someone who's uninitiated with the rules and and because I know that's a finger bowl, you know I, I'm better than you and say so letting the rules divide and foster feelings of self-righteousness and smugness. The civil person might also ignore it or even correct them privately say by the way, You know, this is actually what that is, and make make a joke out of it, make light of it, make sure that they don't feel like you're pointing them out and and embarrassing them. Um, But in hopes of, um, not 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 allowing them to you know potentially embarrass themselves and make that mistake again. Uh, Do them a solid. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All
0: right. Well, we the time is just flying by, and we've got a ton of questions that are coming in. So I'm going to put my questions on pause for a moment and we'll take some audience questions if that's okay lexi absolutely all right uh okay our friend candace Perena from facebook asks where is the threshold if there is one for when a person is so radically adversarial that we cannot be civil to them
1: how would it's you a, it's a great question um you know not all one thing i talk about in the book is that not all venues are equal. Like, a, 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 for example, Thanksgiving's coming up in just a little bit of time. And and mm-hmm. there, uh, uh, there's no question, and, and I also talk about this in the book, that there's no question that politics has descended on the on the dinner table. You know, like that, like, I, I know stories, and I personally struggle with um, people who have ended, ended friendships and family relationships over political disagreements. And my approach to that is, is kind of jurisdictional, that the, the purpose of a Thanksgiving dinner is not the collective pursuit of truth. Like there's a higher good there. The higher good is family and just being together and, and relationships and bonds and, and history and just enjoying and gratitude, you know. Um, those the, those things in that jurisdiction, that context are more important than fighting to the death over the most controversial political matter of the day. Um, a university classroom, for example, that is a, a is a is a um venue that was designed to have robust debate and 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 disagreement and there there should be a broader um allowance to, to have those kind of debates and even even with um you know morally objectional objectionable views i there's this great Burke line although Mill has many great lines about that that um you know my adversary is my helper because it refines our own thinking even if absolutely, we're absolutely
0: absolutely
1: idea that is totally crazy. Like it can sharpen our own thinking. And just the practice of responding to ideas that we disagree with is healthy, even though it's hard, right? Like Paul Clausewitz said, politics is war by other means. And that's a good thing, right? Like if we're, if we're not able to dialogue and, and, and do war by other means like that, that, that does not involve killing each other, literally, then, then, then we'll do politics, war, war, which is politics by other means, right? Like that's the inverse of that. And so having an open conversation um, with people that we differ from is essential like to peace and prosperity and flourishing and, and democracy.
0: I c- couldn't agree more. You know, as I was mentioning uh, prior, previously about the different ways in which some people approach objectivism um, and the Atlas Society uh, subscribes to open objectivism. And until very, very recently, people who ascribe to another view of objectivism uh, have refused to have a conversation with somebody like me because that their take is that even talk to somebody who has a different view is somehow sanctioning that different view so um, interesting. <laughs> and yeah, and it, which is just bizarre because in this case, uh, there's probably very, very little that we we actually dis- disagree about. And so I think I, I've heard it called the narcissism of small differences.
1: Yes. Right, right. Uh, exactly.
0: All right. Our friend Liberty Shamrocker girl is in the house. Uh, and she says, unoffendable, that's going on a t-shirt. Lexi, love you got I love you, it. Let's do to, it. Jack, uh,
1: can we collab on her? that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, that would be great. Um and then she has, of course, a little mischievous question when, uh, in talking about that person who, um, kind of double-crossed you, had you do his work and then presented it as his own? She asks, was there some part of you that would want to help him again, but with bad info? (laughs) No, because then he would just, he would then just pass it off on her.
1: Exactly. I know. I know. So this is also part of my, um, argument that, um, Just as, you know, like, like we talked about it's, 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 it's self-interest misunderstood to be short-sighted with others and, and, you know, cut corners and, and hurt others on the way to, 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 you know, gaining our objectives because, um, we, we hurt ourselves. We, we do hurt ourselves when, when we hurt others. We're, we're inherently interconnected um, as, a, as a species. And um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he talked about this. Socrates talked about this before him, that virtue is its own reward. Vice is its own punishment. Um, Dr. King, in his letter from Birmingham jail, talked about segregation, You know, abusing another human being and, and segregating them like that. That hurts them, but it also hurts the soul of the segregator. And 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 uh, because it's uh, giving the segregator a false sense of superiority, which is, is deforming of the soul. And there was a whole debate, interestingly enough, during the um, civil war period about whether Southerners who owned slaves were fit for, for as being citizens in, in, in a democracy because their souls had been so deformed by owning slaves. There was a whole debate about that. So, I mean, to to some extent, um, I think i know that that was probably more than than uh shamrock liberty <laughs> was was asking for but um you know a tiny footnote to that um that like i i haven't historically been very good at like that sort of you know Next level. I know. Wow. I know. Next, I know. I'm way too transparent. I just like, you were a jerk, like, never talk to me again. Like, I'm way more like, you know, you're dead to me, like kind of mafia much style. But I like I like your thinking. Maybe we should be friends, Shamrock. <laughs>
0: Liberty. All right. Um, let's see. James K- King on Facebook has a question that I was gonna ask. So I'm glad he brought it up. And he's asking, Lexi, do you think social media has played a role in uh the increase in uncivil dialogues or do you think social media has only amplified uh what's already there so Lexi back to you and how does that um tie in the ring of is it uh, ring of gyges
1: yes there you go there you go yeah you tell the story ring of gyges so um yeah so to some extent human nature hasn't changed. That, that, that's a core part of my argument, that we're the same today as we were in ancient Egypt, as we were in ancient Greece. And, and that's why, and there are these two parts of ourselves, the, the profoundly social and, and the self-love that are intentioned, which is why friendship, civilization is fragile and why this is not a new problem. But there are epiphenomena in society that are new and, and that, that exacerbate the challenge in our nature, in, in new ways. And social media is, um, is one example of that. Um, the problem I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell, I'll tell the story of the friggin giant in a second. Uh, but the problem with misidentifying, you know, one political per, uh, figure one political party one novel technology as the cause is that you know you take it away but the problem's still there right like you so we have to be clear about what and, and why I think it's helpful to be clear about the timelessness and intractability of this issue is that you know no single policy person in- intervention no single book <laughs> is enough to change it right like it's 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 a, a collective effort of all of us to sustain this thing called a free and flourishing society every day. Um, So the Ring of Gyges, this is a a story from book five of Plato's Republic. And a shepherd named Gyges uh, was tending his flock and wandered into a cave one day. And he uh, found a skeleton with a ring on it. And he took the ring and he put it on on his finger and he discovered that this ring gave him the power of invisibility. What's the first thing he does, Jag, when he discovers his power? Do you remember from the story?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know what was the first thing, but I know that he uh, started to do some very bad things when he thought no one was looking. That's right. He took advantage of people and he
1: stole things and got up into all kinds of mischief. Mischief, exactly. When all all of a sudden he could act consequence-free, he killed the king and married the queen and made himself... King, um, and, and and so that story, of course, gave life and inspired Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy um, from from Plato originally. But it gets to something that this is this is Glaucon and, and um in the Republic, who's talking about human nature. That this is that that is like a defining facet of human nature. Are are if if we don't have society and consequences and reputation to to harness the worst aspects of us of ourselves in then we are capable of of monstrosity. So this this duality to our nature um is is core to my vision of 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 the human condition, core to my 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 vision of um uh, why it's so important that we each act our uh, act in ways that contribute to the solution. So for example, when it comes to social media, I unpack this idea of Cultivating our digital garden, and the garden is a metaphor that I unpack throughout the book, um, the garden of civilization. And uh, I'll let you uh, read the book to to unpack that even further. But um, as it, as it pertains to social media, like it's so dispiriting often to go online and see the latest incendiary, horrific tweet, or you know the latest mistruth that's being spread, and I, and we can feel really helpless. Um, but there's a lot more that, that we can do. For example, just not patronizing the incendiary, like not giving in to the indulge to indulge the hate click, you know, not sharing things that might contain misinformation, different things like that, but also carving out a little corner of, of the internet, like I've done with my community, civic Renaissance, and just making it a place of beauty and grace. Uh, so I have this newsletter and publication that uh, is dedicated to reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. And that's my tiny attempt. It's just a drop in the bucket, but you know enough drops in the bucket can make change. And so it can be the critical mass, right? That's right. Cultivate your digital garden. So,
0: okay. Well, we're going to put the links to the Civic Renaissance on mm-hmm. all of the platforms. Another key takeaway uh, from your book for me was the importance of separating ideas and the person, and you, um, you maintaining perspective in order to be objective and. You did that with two of your philosophical influences. Uh, We certainly try to do that with Ayn Rand. So, talk a little bit about that and why it is important.
1: Right. Nobody is perfect. Alexander Pope said it well. To err is to be human, to forgive is divine, that we are most like the divine, like God, when we are able to forgive, but we live instead of that, um, you know, that that spirit of grace and forgiveness, we live in this era of strange perfectionism, where we expect everyone past and present to have never made a mistake. And we're just bound to, we're set up to be disappointed and we're set up to, you know, reveal ourselves to be hypocrites when we're pointing fingers at others when we're bound to make mistakes and, and, you know, speak out of turn or, you know, do things that we're not proud of right. In a moment of, of, weakness or whatever. Um, so I, I, I explore this idea of unbundling people and that is taking the part, the mistake, the misdeed, um, in light of the whole, which is the irreducible dignity and worth the personhood of the human being. And, and, and because today we're so quickly to let the part, the mistake, uh, extrapolate that and, and, and let that define the whole, right. And that's why we justify online shaming and cancellation, right? Like we want to destroy people, make sure they're never welcome into polite society again. And and it's not just enough to, um, see them reprimanded. Like we want them destroyed and fired from their jobs. And, um, That is absolutely letting the part, you know, obscure the whole and and the whole being, again, the the value, the personhood um, of of another human being. And so unbundling people is, again, seeing the mistake in light of the irreducible dignity and worth of human beings. And I did that with um, two intellectual influences. Um, We've talked about Socrates. So I'll I'll explore Jean Venier, who maybe may not be as familiar to your to your audience. So Jean Venier, he was um, a French Canadian who created these. Um, communities for people with severe cognitive and intellectual disabilities. They're called LARSh, and they still exist. And they're these small, intimate communities that allow people with disabilities to come together in relationship and in, 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 in really transformative and powerful ways. And so he spent a lot of his life living in community with people with disabilities and wrote many books reflecting on the human condition and human nature from that experience, one of which was called Becoming Human. And um, it was just a really powerful depiction of Humanity, hu- humanity is vulnerable and frail and afraid of our weakness, but how uh, that's why we're afraid of relationship, but we can, um, but how we all want to be seen known and loved. And it's just a really high view of, of, of humanity and personhood and, and, and inspired me in, in, in really beautiful ways, um, his life's work, but also his, 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 his writing, um, a few years after he died. No, no, he died just a few years ago and a few months after he died, it came out that he was a serial abuser of women in in these communities and and, and Larsh, which was just disgusting because obviously he had lived, you know, this double life where on one hand he's purporting these these beautiful ideas about the inherent dignity and worth and and autonomy of, of human beings and yet not living up to that in his own life. And I had to reflect on that, like, does that make me a bad person? Am I like complicit in that? because? I was informed. I was formed by him. You know, the fact that he did bad things and that I liked part of his work. Am I, am I complicit in that? Or do I need to kind of eradicate, purge his influence on my life? Or can we appreciate his art and ideas and good things that he did in his life and condemn the evil things that he did which is abusing his power and abusing and abusing women and so that that was my example of unbundling jean Venier i did the same thing to socrates and i think that it's a helpful thing for us to get in the habit of doing with other people in our life every day like we're, we're in this we're in this age of perfectionism and duality where it's either all good or all bad it's all you're a hero or you're a villain right you're in group or out group and that is the enemy of like That that sort of duality, that dualistic thinking is the enemy of actually respecting the complexity and fullness and fluidity and greatness of what it means to be human. Because what it means to be human is to have free will, and to have free will means to make, we're going to make mistakes sometimes. We're not, we're not, we're we're always capable of rationality, as Jag uh, wisely said, but we don't always use our rationality. Well, right. And so we're going to make mistakes uh, ourselves and others. Um, And, and we, we, we always, you know, if we're ever in this situation where we're in the public eye for a mistake we've made, we're, we're sure as heck going to want to be unbundled. We're not going to want to be defined by this, you know, one thing we said, we've done or said one moment of weakness. So why not extend that? Others.
0: I agree. And I think the other thing is that um, if you are just going around in life and your priority is to avoid making mistakes, then you're going to deprioritize taking risks, uh, and if you deprioritize taking risks, then you are going to not learn and you're not going to innovate and you're not going to improve. So I think um, having a bit more tolerance with the mistakes of others, but also with our own mistakes, uh, because that kind of mindset is necessary in order to be able to find new connections and, and progress. So we're starting to come to, all right, we've got 10 more minutes. I I did want to get to this one interesting point I found in your book. You shared some examples of various government technocrats trying to enforce or engineer civility, a couple of which I had remembered, but some of which were entirely (laughs) new to me. So uh, yeah, bring us up to speed on that and What are the solutions to uh, preventing or
1: avoiding such uh, government overreach? So this is in my chapter on why civility supports our freedom, which is the first half of the chapter, and then our flourishing, which is the second half of the chapter. So in this uh, this, um, section on why civility, uh, our voluntary decisions to subvert you know, our immediate desires for the sake of society and community and and, and flourishing, why it's necessary for a free society and, and a democracy. And if too many people fail to restrain their immediate desires for the sake of society, that autocrats past and present Have imposed by force just common decency. So this is this is like a real present, real present threat. And and I gave several examples. One of which was Mayor Bloomberg's politeness campaign in New York City in the early 2000s. So apparently, the early 2000s were you know a fever pitch of incivility in 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 New York. And he just like laid down all of these laws and fines for common indecencies such as you know spitting in the street. Sure, that's gross, but like you know, find fifty dollars if you spit. Um, putting your feet on the subway seat next to you. So someone couldn't sit down, find $50. If you're a parent at your kid's little league game and you're a little too rambunctious, find $50. If you're texting in the theater, find $50. Like all of these like annoying things in social life, all of a sudden became crimes that you could be fined for. New Yorkers did not like being, um, micromanaged Micromanaged by their by their local government um so it didn't that did not last long and it was also entirely ineffective like that the harm of having laws in the books that are unenforceable is is that it opens up um abuse for power right like selective enforcement of these laws um so it's never a good idea to have unenforceable laws in the books and and let alone it's never a good idea to have laws in the books that um corrode our our autonomy and 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 the, the whole the whole idea is that if we are insufficiently in control of our own actions if we if we fail to make decisions to to, to restrain the worst aspects of ourselves our immediate desires that autocrats past and present are at the ready to, to enforce that that restraint from the top down and there are many many reasons that that we should be that we should be concerned about that
0: All right. George Alexopoulos, Facebook, asks, what do you see the current trajectory of discourse in America? It seems like it's going to be more uncivil as we head towards the 2024 election. Are you optimistic, maybe pessimistic in the short term, optimistic
1: in, in the long term? Either way, you're doing something about it. I'm trying exactly. I think that my uh, theory of social change is very Randian. It's very individualistic. It's very at the micro level um, that we can't change the world. And it's very stoic as well. I kind of borrow from the stoics here that we can't change the world, but we can change ourselves. And that if enough of us choose to change ourselves, that that we can change the world. So after a very divided time in government for me, I um, moved to Washington, D.C. I moved from Washington, D.C. to Indianapolis, where I currently live with my family. And one of my first friends here, she um, came up to me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch? With us, and I had never heard the word porching used as a verb before. So we went to her home that day, and I realized her porch is her is this, is where she's staging this sort of quiet rebellion, this quiet revolution against atomized atomization, and then the division and loneliness in, in our world today. And she had curated a shared space across race across geography, across political divide just to be in the same space, not to have a debate about our difference, just to be friends. And um, that is her mission field like that's where that's where she's trying to heal the world just from her front porch. And what I learned from her is that you don't need, a front porch to do that. You know, it can be a stoop. It can be a coffee shop. It can be, it's just about using what you have and and and, and how you live your life. Um, welcoming the stranger, making the stranger a friend, the outsider and insider. I learned that from her. I learned that from my mother and that we can be a part of the solution too. I learned from government firsthand that there is not a lot of hope there. <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith in our public leaders right now. <laughs> and I agree that it's going to get worse unless we do something. As citizens, that's what's beautiful about democracy. It is a citizen, the citizen is prior to the state, also a very Randian idea. And that we elect who's in office, you know, like that that we can make decisions, that, that and enough of us, collective action, as you were saying, that enough of us choosing to make decisions that are aligned with our values, you know, rewarding virtue in public life and punishing vice, punishing malicious behavior, punishing cruelty, abuse of power, that that is how our system of government was designed to function. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, you talk about
0: some of the timeless qualities of human nature. I think there is also uh, timeless qualities of human nature when in power um, and uh, when they are in a position to uh, foist their control over other people and that it is constantly one in which there is a seemingly um irresistible urge to tell other people what to do. And I think uh, just as you mentioned with um, you know our ability by uh, doing our our part to model the kind of society in which we want to live in, model the kind of behavior that, that we'd like to see in others um, can help to prevent, the imposition of uh, mores of by petty bureaucratic tyrants. I think uh, the the other aspect of that is kind of um, for those who are seeking to again in control speech, seeking to control what people can say. Uh, they may not like it if people say nasty things, but you know I, I think just it is almost inevitable that the more you try to control um, that people are going to react to it, that there is is going to be um, a a backlash against it, which unfortunately, I think, you know, leads to even more kind of hostile and uh, inflammatory speech. so I think uh, a, a lighter governing touch on all of these things, whether it's speech or bores is is more likely to um, foster an environment in which people are able to take responsibility for themselves and uh, and not feel that they are trying to push back against an overweening state um Alexander, where at the? top of the hour any any other items from the book the important points that you wanted to cover that we didn't get to in closing
1: yeah. uh, one idea that i unpacked that's from the second half of that chapter the the freedom was the first half flourishing is the second that i think it is is a randian idea that would resonate with uh, with your audience and that Rand would appreciate is that um that there's a sociologist called ernst gilner and he wrote this um A book called The Conditions of Liberty. And he explored this question, you know, why in the aftermath of totalitarianism, um, of the Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe, why was it that Western attempts to just airdrop institutions of a free society, um, elections, democracy, um, you know, um, civil society, why did all those fail? And he said, it's because of, of a lack of of social trust and affection, basic affection between citizens that had been so corroded by government overreach for decades, uh, after decades of totalitarianism and oppression, that you couldn't just airdrop those institutions of a free society without the culture and the trust and respect and effectively like it, it had been this... Um, you know, we use the phrase McCarthyism, but it was like this, you know, you never knew who was going to turn you in for, for a thought crime or an infraction against the state. Like you, you were fearful of your neighbors, your family members all the time. You couldn't trust anyone. And that that social trust, that basic affection between citizens supported and, and, and belied a free society. Uh, and I I love that insight because it, it's, it's a cautionary tale. For us in our own era, um, about how the fragility of our institutions we take them for granted. We take peace and prosperity for granted. There's war in the Middle East right now, and it's a and 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 we're rightly like glued to our televisions and radio stations. What we're always you know we're scandalized by what by what we're seeing unfold there, and that reveals a privilege in our current moment that peace and prosperity are. The norm, generally, and that that times of war um, are are horrible, and um, and, and thankfully that they're not the norm. That hasn't been the case throughout human history. Conflict tends to be the norm in human history, and peace and prosperity are only only come about by accident when everyone's you know tired of fighting for a little bit. <laughs> and and so I I hope that um, you can read my book and and and, and take and be be encouraged by the power we each have to be part of, of of the solution to healing our our deep divisions and also in supporting the um our free and, and and flourishing way of life that we're privileged enough to have um in 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 democracy in american democracy
0: a good thought as we are all looking forward to uh thanksgiving next yeah. month i think yeah. this would be a good primer to read uh, the soul of civility as you are preparing for what can sometimes be a contentious, uh, <laughs> contentious dinner. When is the, um, audio version coming out? I've I already got it on pre-order.
1: Oh, I love it. I'm so thrilled. Yes. Yeah, so next, next week it'll launch. Um, so thrilled about thrilled about that. And I got, and I got to record it as I shared, which, um, I I'm, I'm really happy about It's my, it's my book and it's my story. So can't wait to share it with you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alexandra. Really appreciate this time with you. Thanks, Jack. And thanks everyone for, for taking the time.
0: Yes, thanks all of you who joined us. Thank you for your great question. Of course, if you enjoyed this video or any of the work that we do at the Atlas Society, please consider making a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org. All new donations will be matched by our trustees. Now be sure to sign up on our website for tomorrow's Atlas Society Book Club, where we continue our exploration of the Fountainhead to celebrate the novel's 80th anniversary. And then of course, next week, um, make sure that you join us when none other than Kevin Sorbo uh, is going to be with us and we'll talk about um, his new movie, The Miracle of East Texas on the next episode of The Atlas Society Asks. See you then.